How does one of the world's most renowned photographers humanize data? Can ordinary people do extraordinary things? What is true power? Welcome back to another episode of Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. I'm so excited about Platon. He's today's guest. It's hard to describe who he is. When I think of Platon, I think of the guy in the Dos Equis beer commercials, you know, the most interesting man in the world. To me, Platon is one of the most interesting people in the world. He is one of the world's most renowned portrait photographers. He's photographed more world leaders than anyone else in history, including six American presidents, icons from Muhammad Ali, Adele, and Prince. He's photographed over 30 covers for Time magazine, including a 2008 portrait of Vladimir Putin. He was the staff photographer to The New Yorker. He's won many accolades, including the Peabody Award. In 2013, he started a nonprofit foundation called the People's Portfolio. We'll speak about that in our conversation. He's currently on the board for the Arts and Culture at the World Economic Forum. His life's work is the subject of an amazing Netflix documentary, Abstract, The Art of Design. This is one of my favorite series on TV. I highly, highly recommend that you watch it. Platon's first film is My Body is Not a Weapon. It features survivors of wartime sexual violence and the 2018 Nobel Peace Prize laureate, Dr. Dennis Mukwege. I've been waiting over a half a year to speak to Platon. He has an extremely busy schedule. I was so grateful that he came on the show. Felt so honored. I really admire who he is, his work, his passion. We talk about so many different topics. It was hard to even describe what this show was about. So I called it Designing for Humanity. So many things to say, but let's just jump into my conversation with Platon. Platon, welcome to Design Lab. It's great to be here. Let's go. To refresh your memory, I first met you back in 2017. I believe it was the first fundraiser for the People's Portfolio. Yeah. And there was an amazing, amazing man there. Dr. Mukwege. Yeah. And I did not know who he was when I got invited to go with my CEO at the time. And I kind of wanted just to go because like Robin Wright was there and Dr. Jill Biden, but I was blown away by Dr. Mukwege's work. And then also by the speech that you gave and the documentary. Mm -hmm. So I was curious to know, why did you decide to make a documentary about this physician. And can you tell us who he is and the type of work that he does? Well, uh, my relationship with this extraordinary man goes way back. I'm photographing people all the time. They come to my studio, they sit for me and we have a chat. And he was one of those people that um, was brought to my studio because of the work he had done as a human rights defender. So we had a chat before I started taking pictures. I took some pictures. He's a doctor, and I wanted to photograph him in a doctor's coat to help tell the story. So lessons I learned from working at The New Yorker. A photograph has to 
give you a sense of someone's humanity, but it also has to tell a bit of a story. Mm. Can't always rely on a caption. In fact, you shouldn't. So uh, I said to him, you know, doctor, this would be really cool if you were wearing your coat. And he said, well, I hope you respect my position. But he said, my doctor's white coat is something that's very spiritual for me. Mm. And I only wear that when I'm working with my patients and I'm healing people. Mm. And he said it would feel very inauthentic if I wore a doctor's coat for a picture. He said, if you really want to photograph me in my doctor's coat, you'll have to come to the Democratic Republic of Congo to my hospital to see me in action. And then I would be proud to wear it in front of you because it will be real. So that started off a very interesting conversation. So I said, tell me more about your hospital. And he told me that many years ago, he he set up this small hospital in a rural area to help women have natural childbirths hmm. in an area that they didn't really have access to proper healthcare. And I believe it was his first patient came through the doors was actually a woman who needed urgent medical help because she had been raped and sexually assaulted. Mm. And so he healed her body, he did the operation, and he hoped this would be a fluke. Turns out it was the beginning of a epidemic of rape as a weapon of war. Mm. And so since then, his small hospital has healed and operated on and nurtured back to a healthy life, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of women and children who are survivors of sexual violence. Mm. So he told me this story and I was deeply moved. And remember, I'm in New York, in my New York studio. And, and I said to him, what's your biggest hurdle apart from the obvious of trying to help these women physically recover and emotionally recover. He said the biggest problem apart from that, which is his biggest challenge as a doctor, but as a communicator is trying to tell this story to the rest of the world so mm. that we can all come together as a global community and stop this. And I said, why is that a problem? He said, storytelling, this is the untellable story. Mm. And how do you stop people in their busy day and inspire them to listen to these horrific stories and capture their hearts and minds and welcome them to get involved. So he told me that one of the biggest problems we all face in the human rights community and in the civil rights community is data, mm. that we have data, we have research, and we have information. But that doesn't change people's hearts and minds. What changes people, what motivates people to get involved is a story. Mm. And people are not numbers. They might be represented by numbers, but essentially people are like you and me. Mm. So my job is to try to humanize the data by bringing it alive and turning it into something that you see yourself in. Mm. So he invited me to the Congo. He invited me to his hospital. I took my entire team, had to raise money with my foundation, which is an amazing platform that has helped me 
do this kind of work over many years now. Mm. And we went and he taught me what I needed to know. But more importantly than even that, the women I photographed there at his hospital who are recovering, who are survivors of sexual violence, they all taught me a lot as well. Mm. And my job was not to speak for them, but to amplify their voices and to offer them an enhanced platform of leadership through this media channel that I have access to. Mm. So I'm a megaphone or a bullhorn, you know, but it's very important that you have to listen very carefully. You know, I recent, not that long ago, I photographed an extraordinary young girl. Her name is Naomi Wadler. Mm. And she's 11. She was 11 years old at the time. Now she's a teenager, but she was a campaigner for black girls' rights, particularly as victims of gun violence and extraordinary speaker. So I invited her and her mom to my New York studio, take a picture of her, but also to talk about the current gridlock we all face as grown-ups in society right now. Mm -hmm. She said something that was a real showstopper. She said, talk with people, listen to them, don't just hear them. Mm -hmm. And then I said to her, how can I, as a white middle-aged man, be of service to your cause. And she said, oh, that's easy. Stand with us, mm. but not in front of us. To stand with us and not in front of us is a very powerful thing. And it gave me the greatest rule book for navigating a future path. So it was my great honor and privilege to stand with these people I met in the Congo, these heroic people, to photograph them not really as victims, even though they have been victimized, that's for sure. Mm. But I saw them as activists and heroes because everyone I met was also an activist who had mm. taken their own adversity and transformed it into compassion for others. And so I photographed them as motivated activists, courageous activists who are driving positive change. And it changed a little bit of the dynamic, how we look at a survivor of sexual violence. Mm. You see, in the Congo, normally what happens is if you're a woman and you've gone through this horrific experience, you are treated as a person of shame. Society. It's a mm. shameful thing to be a victim in many cases. And the man who committed this crime is often seen as sort of tough guy gangster. Mm. So what we tried to do was to reverse that process. And when I photographed the women I met, I photographed, I saw joyous, courageous, heroic women who were overcoming the worst adversity you could imagine. Mm. And I photographed them as, as heroes because to me they were. But I also spoke to the local police and they gave me access to a jail. And I looked through the jail gates and in there were two men who were accused of sexual violence, extreme sexual violence. And it was like looking into the gates of hell and through that door, wind, that little opening 
You brought your whole film crew in. I there. got the whole film crew in there,、oh、and I set up the studio in a against a wall outside the jail door, and I asked the jailer if he would let the two guys out temporarily so I could photograph them, and he did. And they came out. This was after I'd、wow. photographed maybe a hundred women at Pansy Hospital. What I'd just done the two weeks before. Now seeing. A man who is accused of this was、mm. just, and it's up close and personal. I'm not seeing him across a courtroom; I'm inches away from his nose.、Yeah. And I went to take his picture, and the first thing he did was he put his hands over his face in shame.、Mm. He didn't want his face to be seen, and that's how I photographed him. And when I showed, when I put that picture in my film that I made, alongside the heroic pictures of the women. And I showed it the first time to Dr. McQuaigie.、Mm. The most important thing he said to me was, "With those two pictures, the shamed man, the heroic woman, that I had accidentally begun a process of reversing the process of shame,、mm. and now it was the man who did this crime or was accused of this crime who was now embarrassed and shameful and hiding." And it was the woman who was standing proud, wanted to show the world her face, wanted to show the world her story, and we had inadvertently turned that narrative around. And the doctor said to me, "That was one of the most important things I could have done as a storyteller." So I was very humbled、mm. to have played that small role, and we campaigned heavily to help him win the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, and you won it. In 2018, yeah,、right? and I I can't tell you how proud I was and a bit embarrassed that he invited me to the ceremony, and I sat there with his family in the front row, and watched this extraordinary man go up and receive the medal, but also made a very powerful speech about accountability and how we all have to do everything we can do. To transform this troubled world, and I felt I didn't really deserve to be there, to be honest, because I was with his family.、Mm-hmm. But I think it was one of those high points in my entire life where I I felt part of something that was important.、Mm-hmm. So it was a very humbling moment. It was the best, yeah, you know, the best accolade anyone could have is、mm-hmm. just to be invited to be part of something like that. And he is so inspiring. One. He had death threats all the time. Is that right? In, in the DRC, I remember you saying that in, in your speech、yeah. about him. And he, as a physician, he's not only concerned about healing the bodies, but bringing—he's concerned about social justice. And the two are hand in hand in his mind. Well, you know, the thing is. I mean, I photographed a lot of people that we regard as heroes over the years. I photographed—I was known to be the photographer of power, and I photographed all these world leaders, and I photographed celebrities. And what's interesting to me is that, you know, someone like Dr. McQuaigie and so many extraordinary defenders of human rights around the world,、mm-hmm. we think of them as superhuman.、Mm-hmm. You know, we think of them as, oh, he has something that we don't have. He's got some kind of superpower to be able to do that. To do what was it? I don't know if it's like eight 
55,000 people he's he's operated on over the years since he started his hospital. I can't remember the exact statistic. Mm. It's just extraordinary. But he's not superhuman. He's an ordinary person. And thinking of him as superhuman lets us off the hook because we think, well, we're just normal. So there's no point in us trying to do that. He's a normal person. He gets tired. He gets exhausted. He gets lonely. He feels vulnerable. He's worried for his life. He's worried for his family's life because of the assassination attempts. He's worried for all the women that he protects in his hospital grounds. And what is interesting is that he's not superhuman. He's human, Mm. but he does superhuman things. And that comes at great cost. But it's a reminder to us all. And it's not for me to preach. It's a remind. I speak from personal experience. It's a reminder to myself that, with all my limitations, and there are many limitations I have, and all my flaws, I can do a few things right. And if I can apply those few talents that I have to something that's important, and I am more committed than anyone else, I can actually do something, and I can play a, a small role in driving something forward. And it's really an attitude of mind and commitment. Mm. So I've learned that. And I learned that from being around human rights defenders for 30 years. Mm. They taught me that. No one's superhuman. No one has superhuman powers. But some ordinary people do extraordinary things. Mm. I'm curious to know in your career, so you have photograph more world leaders than anyone else in history, the most powerful people. So you've been around the most powerful people, but now you photograph probably the least powerful people in the world. And what's that transition like? And what was the inspiration or impetus to shift? Well, some years ago, I had the privilege to work with Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. And I went to his home and he was very ill when I visited him. In fact, I believe it turned out to be the last portrait session he did, if not almost the last. He had lost control of his once most powerful fists and arms. But I draped, I remember draping the American flag over his shoulder and he was compelled one last time to hold up his hands in that classic defiant boxing mm-hmm. pose. And I remember his wife got quite emotional who was watching because she had not seen him be able to do this in quite a while. And at the end of the shoot, I was deeply moved because he's one of my heroes. And I said to him, you know, Muhammad, you are the greatest. Teach me to be great. How can my generation be as great as your generation had to be during the civil rights era? And he couldn't speak very well because of Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. So I had to get close to him and he whispered in my ear and he said, I have a confession to make. What is it? I said. And he said, I wasn't as great as I said I was. Holy shit, I said. (laughs) That's the biggest (laughs) confession I ever heard in my life, man. The whole world knows you as Ali the greatest. And then he said something that changed my life. He said, you misunderstand me. I'll tell you what was great. It wasn't me. It was that people saw themselves in my struggle. People Mm -hmm. saw themselves in my story and then he turned it to me and I I have the great honor to turn it to you and your listeners and say, if you can get people to see themselves 
in the story that you put forward, then you have a chance of achieving greatness. Mm. And that greatness is never you personally. That's something much bigger called bridge building. Mm. So I realized at that point that power is not necessarily in authority or the establishment. Mm. There is a thing called people power that history has taught us can override authority at any given moment. People power's currency comes from us, the ordinary people working together. When we get together for a common cause or a common goal, we can change history and turn things around. And when we're distracted and divided, we have no power whatsoever. Mm. So my job in society is to just be part of a movement that's trying to bring people back together so that we can deal with some of the biggest challenges we face together, irrespective of our political alliances. Mm. I don't think we should ever be a community of like-minded people. Mm. I think we should be a beautiful community of unlike-minded people, and yet we're still compelled to collaborate and come together to fix the challenges we face. And the challenges are overwhelming at times. Mm. I mean, what's happening with our division in society, what's happening with climate change, You've seen people movements recently come from the street. Black Lives Matter, mm. women's movements like Me Too movement. So many moments where people who has, whose voices have been ignored have got together and shouted in unison. And the people behind those big gates hear those shouts and screams. Mm. That's a very powerful moment. So I, if I was known as the photographer of power, I still think I'm the photographer of power. But it's not of the old power as I used to know it. It's of people power. It's mm. the same thing. It's just driving in a different direction. And what struck me when I met you and talked with you is that you're an extremely humble person and I'm, I was like nervous, like hanging out with you and, you know, even a little nervous now talking to you, but you're around so many powerful people. But I was like, this, I thought it was maybe an act. I was like, this guy's so, he has such humility about him. Hey, did you have to learn that? Like, where did that come from? Well, the first thing always is don't believe the hype. Right? <laughs> don't believe the hype. The second thing is that I always had a healthy disregard for power and authority, even when I was a kid. Doesn't mean I'm disrespectful to it. It just means I don't buy it. I remember reading something that Martin Luther King said. He said, beware of the illusion of supremacy because it doesn't exist. It's an illusion. And I have seen that illusion play out again and again in my earlier work. I mean, I still photograph people who are, you know, powerful and, and successful. And I get to see behind the scenes. I get to see how nervous they are. I get to see their mm. PR 
machine with their clipboards and their iPhones all very hesitant about is the tie straight is what's the are they on brand are they on message is this going to destroy their position what they just said or looked like I've seen all that play out mm. and it's all built on insecurity mm. and it's a fraudulent process at the end of the day because it's not real there is no such thing as a supreme person mm. there's just people who do extraordinary things. Sometimes those things are very, very bad. And sometimes those things are very, very good. Mm. Like my hero, McQuaige. And I photograph people who have done very bad things as well and continue to do very bad things. Like Putin. Like Putin. <laughs> like Gaddafi. Yeah. Like Mugabe. So I've seen all sides of the spectrum. But the most important thing about having a healthy disregard for power is also having a healthy disregard for my own position mm. as a person of influence. And I have to always remind myself that, look, man, I'm just a deeply flawed person trying to do something with the few skills that I have. It's just that I'm very focused on one or two skills and I'm very, very determined. My wife calls me the most stubborn man in the world. And <laughs> And I think I am I'm definitely <laughs> up there, top five. I've got a seat at the stubborn table. So I just don't quit. I just don't stop until we win. Mm. Now, you don't always win, but you get darn close most of the time. In preparing for our, our conversation, I've listened to hours of you on other podcasts. So, and what I love is a statement that you said, you said, you believe your mission is to cure society of their amnesia. Yeah. And, and I love that. W what does that mean? Well, we've all got the memory at the moment of a goldfish, you know? I mean, someone recently gave advice what to do if you say something on social media that creates backlash and everyone hates you all of a sudden. And the best advice, I can't remember who said it, but what they said was just wait two weeks <laughs> and then it all goes away and then there's something else actually it's so not even true. two weeks man it's like just five minutes at the moment yeah and we all forget what happened and if something bad has happened it's we've got to remind ourselves that that happened. And, you know, so I used to get criticized sometimes for photographing all these sort of dictators, you know, I once got criticized for photographing Ahmadinejad of Iran. Iran's in the news again at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was backstage at the UN and Ahmadinejad just made one of the most controversial speeches at the UN, threatening global security, mm -hmm. talking about human rights in the most horrific way. And many members of the GA, General Assembly, walked out during mm. his speech. So it was very controversial. I was backstage waiting to get a picture of him. So I didn't know what he was saying on stage. I couldn't hear it. It was afterwards I heard it. He comes off stage. He's swarmed by all his advisors. It was like a scrum all around him of all these tough guys. And they were mm. all congratulating him on a very successful speech. They were patting his back. It was almost jubilation backstage. So they all started to walk away with him in the middle of this big group. 
and I was losing my chance to get him. So I elbowed my way into the middle of his group. I grabbed both of his hands and I looked into his eyes and I said, you are coming with me. I must take your picture. And it's like maybe I hypnotized him or something, <laughs> but no one stopped me. And what? as I tugged his hands a bit to where my setup was, which was just like 15 feet away, he pigeon stepped in my direction and it felt like everyone moved. As I pulled his hands, I pulled 15 men who were his entourage. He sat down in front of my camera. And as I started to take a picture, he started to get embarrassed because all his henchmen started to laugh that he was now like a movie star. They were getting it wrong. They didn't realize what I'm doing. Mm. They thought of this as a movie star moment and they all started to laugh and tease him. And for a few moments, he lost his composure mm. and started to giggle. And he didn't want to be seen as a nervous, laughing, embarrassed teenager. Mm. He wanted to be seen as the tough guy who's just made this speech. So I caught him without realizing, trying to compose himself halfway between the dictator and the embarrassed teenager. And what I caught was a weird leer on his face. And when that was published in The New Yorker, along with a hundred other world leaders we did in a, in a whole issue, that picture was seen by some as, how dare you show warmth mm. in his character? And my response to that was on the day, and it's still exactly the same. My job is just to be true to the moment. And at that moment, that's what was happening. Mm. And the human condition is not as simple as we make it out to be in our society. We paint these dictatorial men as two-dimensional dictatorial cartoons, and they're not. They're three-dimensional. In many cases, many of them have the capacity to show charm, even mm. kindness, which is bizarre considering what they do to the world. Mm. There's very famous, scary, horrific pictures of Hitler talking to children, and he seems to be compassionate to them. And it's even more sinister for me that he's able to do that and do the other things that he did. Mm. And so I feel that it's my job to show how complicated this really is. And maybe the most important thing is here. If he's capable of having a bit of a sense of humor or laughing with his friends afterwards or showing an element or a hint of charm, mm. And he's capable of inspiring people. And if we paint him as a two-dimensional cartoon all the time, we are underestimating his power mm. and his capacity to motivate people to follow him. And my job is to remind everybody that these people are not to be underestimated. Everyone's writing Putin off right now as a madman, and he may well be madman. Mm. And that he's not well or that he's, you know, facing impending doom. And those that might be true analysis. But 
I can't help feeling that he's not to be underestimated. Mm -hmm. And this man is a strategist. And if someone is going to war with you, you've got to believe that they also believe they will win. Otherwise, they wouldn't have started it. Mm. So the question is, what is he still capable of doing? And that's what should keep us up at night. Mm. Not a self-congratulatory position where he's just a lunatic and we should all feel good about ourselves in society. This is a very dangerous situation we're in. And I can't help feeling that he's, you know, he's not to be underestimated. Mm. And this thing can go a lot further and that he will go to a lot further extreme lengths, but we don't know. And it's not for us to peer into the future, mm. but you know, I've met these guys and then that you can't underestimate them. Yeah. I mean, that's a powerful photo that you took of him. You were inches away from his, his face. Yeah. It's, you know, it's very interesting. Some years later, I worked with Riot and I photographed Nadia Tolokonikova and her friend Masha after they were released from a Siberian prison because of their stance yeah, supporting women's that. rights and LGBTQ rights. And, you know, Nadia, when they were in the courtroom before they went to prison, they were kept in, in a cage like wild animals. And Nadia was constantly scribbling during her court case on a scrappy piece of paper, handwritten notes. And eventually the judge asked her to stand and make her closing statement before sentencing. And I'm sure she must have known she's going to go to jail. But she stood up in her cage, took a deep breath, nervously read out from her notes and what she said to the judge and to the world i think will go down in history as one of our generation's greatest speeches and she said i memorized it she said i wouldn't give people labels there are no winners or losers here injured parties or accused we just need to make contact to establish a dialogue and a joint search for truth to seek wisdom together to be philosophers together rather than stigmatize and labeling people. That is one of the worst things we could do. Now, I feel that Nadia thinks one of the worst things we could do is to judge each other. And I'm guessing that perhaps one of the worst things we could do is not only to judge each other, but maybe we should be less judgmental, more curious about each other. Mm. She said that statement just before she's about to go to jail. She knew she's going to go to jail, and yet she still reached out trying to create an open dialogue even with her opponents. Mm. That's a very, very powerful thing to do. Mm. And I think we can all learn very important lessons from that. Mm. You know, and I've I've had the great privilege to go to Russia many times, and right now... The danger of this simplification of our media narrative is that all Russians are somehow demonic. Mm. And the people I know in Russia are very brave, compassionate, beautiful people who care deeply about human rights. Many of them have paid a heavier price than we would ever pay. Mm. Many of them have been imprisoned and tortured because of their stance on human rights. And their voices are being silenced right now. Mm. So I don't think it's a Russian question. I think it's a question about abuse of power. And that's, we have to make sure we 
we never just make sweeping statements about a nation. Mm. A woman I know in Russia recently sent me a text and I said, how are you doing? And she said, "Is this, we're living through a nightmare here, she said. She described it in a very chilling way. She said, it feels like I'm at the funeral of my best friend. And while I'm standing at the funeral, I also know deep down I am the murderer. Mm. Wow. That's how she feels. And she's heartbroken, but she's being labeled a murderer when actually she's devastated. So it's crazy things that are going on right now mm. because I've been there and I've, I've met him. I've met Putin. I've met Medvedev and I've also met all these brave people. It leaves me feeling a little bit confused. Sometimes it's not as clear cut as you see on all mm. the news programs. It's much more confusing and, and complicated as with all situations in life, you know, mm. lots of questions, not enough answers. Yeah. Well, I have a thousand more questions. We are running out of time. I want to ask about creativity. One of my favorite shows is Abstract, The Art of Design, and you were on season one. There's a whole episode on you, and one of my favorite episodes. And for those who aren't in, quote, creative fields, like many of the listeners who are in physicians or nurses or in the healthcare field that's not seen as a creative field, I want to ask you the importance of creativity in everyone's life, whether they're in the creative field or not, and how we can tap into that creativity. I mean, that's a big question. It deserves a big answer. I think back to a day I spent with Quincy Jones, and I'm not name dropping. Well, I am name dropping, but it's not the hanging out with Quincy Jones that's the important bit. Mm -hmm. It's what he told me that's important. Now, we all think of Quincy as like this just beautiful, magical character in history who's always smiling and charming and optimistic and celebratory with music and with media. But you probably, we easily forget we're going back to amnesia. Mm -hmm. The battles he must have fought when he was a young black man in America, breaking through into a white establishment, mm -hmm. particularly writing film scores in Hollywood at the highest level, breaking those boundaries. So I was intrigued by how he broke through these barriers. Mm. And I said to him, Quincy, when you were young and you faced so many opponents who were racist, what did you say to them? How did you get through that? And his face dropped He's the charm disappeared, the warmth, the charisma stopped, and somehow he channeled this kind of power, determination, resilience. And he looked straight into my eyes and he said, This is what I always said to my opponents who judge me. He mm. said, Not one drop of my self worth depends on your acceptance of me. Mm. And I thought, fucking wow. hell, man. Wow. That is epic. That's the kind of self-belief you need to break through those barriers. And right now, we are in danger of suspending our self-belief and our self-worth. And we're trading it in 
for likes and followers. Mm. We think that's more valuable. The most valuable thing is humility, curiosity, and a determination to serve and drive positive change in any field you're in. Mm. And anyone can do something that makes a difference. In fact, it's not just anyone. We all need each other to play that. You need the postman, you need the fireman, you need the policeman, you need the doctor, you need the nurse. You need every single member of society to do what Quincy did, mm. to believe in themselves that they can be part of this extraordinary pivotal moment in history because we've got some rebuilding to do and we all need to do it together. Democrats and Republicans, we need both teams to work together. You can't do it on your own either side. You can't have a victory if half the country feels they are losers. That's not a victory. That's a loss, even if your side thinks they won. The win is when everyone works together to solve the problem. Because if half the people feel they lost, there is not one big problem that will be solved. And you know very well, because you're a beautiful person, and I know you well as a human person, you know better than anyone, there are so many problems that are not being solved in our society. Mm. If one party or the other party win the presidency, they call that a victory. But meanwhile, the people don't see any difference in the front line. Then how can that be a victory for the people, whoever is in power? Mm. People that you introduced me to, they tell me that it makes no difference who is in power. They're still struggling and they're still ignored. That's messed up. Mm. So it goes back to your original question about power. What is power? If you acquire power, it's your duty to give away. Mm. If you hold on to it, it corrupts and burns your spirit. And the more you hold on to it, the more corrupted you become as a human being. And you become so fearful of losing it that you start to forget about morality and mm. you start to forget about fairness because your top priority is to hold on to it. But if your first instinct is to share it and give it away, share it amongst your friends and even share it amongst people who didn't know were your friends, strangers in quotes, then how can it corrupt you? You just gave mm. it away. Mm. The people I know who are the most beautiful people in the world gave it away. And the irony is that they are the ones that history will love. History never loves a dictator. Mm. History loves people like Martin Luther King, people who gave it away, who shared it. So why can't politicians wake up and smell the coffee and get that very simple concept? I do not know. But we won't give up. We have to keep telling them. I learn so much every time talking to you. <laughs> you learn that I know nothing. And I'm just, I'm here to ask questions. And actually... The answer is not an answer. The answer is a question. Is it fair? Is it right? If you can dare have the courage to ask yourself 
those questions about everything that you believe and everything you do. That takes a bit of courage to do that because you might be wrong. And that's uncomfortable and inconvenient to have to change course, accept you're wrong. My goodness me, that's a tough call, especially when you're determined like me and like you. Mm. You have to, that's when you need that humility to help you shift and pivot and be more agile in your plan so that you can correct where you went wrong. Mm. You know, ego is a very dangerous thing and I have it like, you know, I have to battle it all the time. I've got to have a bit of ego to do the kind of work I do, but that ego is a very dangerous thing mm. because it, it also can make you blind and brittle. We should be a tree you bend in the wind, but you never snap. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Well, Thank you for curing us of our amnesia. Thank you for coming on the show. I, I know you have a, such a busy schedule and I'm just honored to connect with you again after so many years. Mate, you are one of the special people. And the first time we had a conversation, I was so inspired and I wanted to learn so much from you and you taught me so much. And people don't know the work we've done together because it hasn't come out yet. But there's a lot of exciting work that you and I have done together. And it's my duty and my honor to try and amplify the voices of the people that you have introduced me to. Mm. So I feel very privileged to have met you on my journey. And you're one of those special people that made my life better so I want to thank you from my heart for for taking your time to show me what's going on in the world. You opened my eyes. You're very much part of my direction that I've taken, and I want to thank you. Don't thank me. I'm thanking you. Amazing. Thank. Well, I'm going to say thank you to end this. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And to your listeners, come on. Let's shake up the world, as Ali used to say. This is our moment to get involved. And it would be awful if we all look back at this moment of rebuilding when we're old and we've, you know, we're about to go off on that final journey and we have regret that we didn't quite make the most of our opportunities. Did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? How did we play it? Did we push our talents? You talk about creativity. Did you push your creativity? Did you push your talent to the limit? Mm. Did you floor that pedal? So I really think you've got to now. You've got to just get involved. And the risks are good. The risks are great. Mm. You might make mistakes. The wheels will come off the track once in a while. You can't be afraid of that. The risks of not getting involved and not applying your talent and not driving positive change are greater. So get involved. It will get bumpy. It's going to be messy. We will offend a few people by accident. But if we're agile and humble, we'll correct ourselves as quickly as possible and move on together. And that's how I think we all need to start thinking. You got me energized, man. I, <laughs> I, I, I love it. All right. <laughs> Great to see you, my friend. Great to see you. You can follow Platon on Instagram at P-L-A-T-O-N. And 
please support the Design Lab podcast. You can do this by going to Apple Podcasts, giving us five stars, and leaving us a review there. It's kind of hard to know where to do it, but if I promise you there is a way to actually go to Apple Podcasts and leave a comment, that helps other people find out about the show. Sign up for our newsletter. There's a link in the podcast show notes. And if you like what you hear, if you like our conversations, tell someone about the podcast. Reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U, on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Editing is by Fernando K. Royce. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston. The cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.